0: John 13, picking up in verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, of course, he's speaking of Judas. Jesus said, said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say unto you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whether I go, ye cannot Follow, ye canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterward. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your words unto us, that we would appreciate all of the truth therein. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Well, Um, I wanted to talk with us this morning, of course, about what it says here. But I want us to appreciate a couple of things. And one of those things I want us to appreciate is when the Lord is speaking to his disciples here, he's now pulled them out of the public eye and he's speaking to them uh, separately. But he's saying to them things similar to what he has said to other people in in public. And, uh, for example, back in John chapter 12, I'm going to look at verse 20 through 23. In John 12:20 20 through 23, the Lord said, This is, uh, in the context of this, was after he's um, ridden down the Mount of Olives and gone into uh, the temple at Jerusalem. And it says, There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was in Bethesda in Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip telleth Jesus. In verse 23, and it says, And Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come. Well, what is he speaking about? He's speaking about the cross, that the Son of Man should be glorified. And so he's speaking about the cross here in the context of what things that are set before us here, and that he's going to go to the cross. In John 13:33, he says here, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, ye shall see me. And as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, ye cannot come. So now I say unto you. So the Lord has shared um, publicly and privately that he's going to a place where people cannot come. And I'm afraid that as I'm looking at my notes here, that's not the verse I wanted in John chapter 12, but uh, Lord willing, we'll get to it. But again, the point is he's told people where he's going and that they cannot come with him. He's also shared it in the context of that he's going to the Father and... There are those that cannot come with him to the Father. And he says the same thing to the disciples here. You cannot come with me now, but then you will be able to come later. So John chapter 7, verse 32 through 36. He's speaking to the Pharisees here in John chapter 7, verse 32. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while I am with you. He's going to remain and continue to preach to them for a period of time. And then I go unto him that sent me. Well, who has sent the Lord? How many times has he told us that he's been sent by the Father? Ye shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, ye cannot come. They cannot come unto the Father. And it's a terrible thing for him to leave it there. But when he speaks in John chapter 13 to his disciples, he's telling them that you can't come now, but you will be able to come. We should appreciate that context because John chapter 13 opens up with the Lord telling us that. In verse 1, he says, When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. So we're now on the brink of that. He's going to go to the Father. In verse 3, it says, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. So it's the context that he's going to the Father. So we read in verse 36 here in John chapter 13, it says, whither I go, ye cannot follow me now. That one little word there makes all the difference in terms of what he said to the disciples and what he had said to the Pharisees. But thou shalt follow me afterwards. So now we get down to verse three through six of John chapter 14, and that's what he's talking about here. In verse three of John chapter 14, he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So he's helping them appreciate that he's going to the Father, and then he's going to come and return and bring them back uh, to where he shall be. Now, so what we need to appreciate when I read this to us, or when we cover this, is that there's nothing special with respect to the disciples. They don't have a faith that's extraordinary or a faith that's really any different than the rest of the people, and certainly no different than our own. In verse 36 of John chapter 13, we can appreciate Peter's ignorance. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? He doesn't know where he's going. The Lord has told him several times where he's going. We covered that last week. He's told him first he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. And then he's going to raise again from the third day. But he's also told him several times here that he's going to the Father, that he's been sent by the Father and that he's going to the Father. But in the context here, Jesus is going to the cross. And in verse 36, Jesus says, "Whether I go, ye cannot follow me now, but unto uh, but thou shalt follow me afterwards." Up um, earlier in a few verses, he had told them that he was going to go, that he couldn't come with him, meaning he was going to go to the cross. Here it's that's up in verse 33. Whether I go, ye cannot come, but down here he's saying, "I'm going. You can't come now, but you'll be able to come later." So the Lord is on his way to the cross, and Peter not understanding or appreciating his own lack of faith, lack of understanding, lack of appreciation of everything that needs to be accomplished, says, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Why am I not fit right now to go to glory? Um, Jesus answered him. uh, Peter says that he will lay down his life for his sake. And the Lord says, no, you're not going to lay down your life for my sake. Not only will you not lay it down for my life's sake, but you will deny me to save your life. And that's how... um, blind we are to our own depravity and to our own lack of appreciation of, for who Christ is and who we are and what things uh, we lack what things might be necessary that we might be presented to God so Peter we can appreciate he's ignorant of his own heart he, he's boastful about what he thinks he's going to be able to do and the Lord says no you're going to actually going to deny me in verse 5 of John 14 we see Thomas's ignorance Thomas saith unto him Lord we know not whether thou goest And how can we know the way? Has not the Lord been with them for three and a half years, telling him from whence he came, what he's here for, and what he's going to accomplish? But Thomas has not understood anything. And then we get down to verse 8 of uh, John chapter 14. It says, And Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it us. "No, if you'll just do this one thing here, if you'll just show us who the Father is, then we'll have an appreciation for who you really are. And that is um, consistent with what the Jews do. The Jews... Um, Desire a sign. You know, it says the Greeks seek knowledge and the Jews desire a sign. And we see that all through the scriptures that the Jews were ever asking the Lord that he would give them a sign of some kind. And he said unto them, of course, that I will not give any sign to this uh, generation except for the sign of Jonas, um, which he did give to him, give to them. And yet they believed not. So showing a sign. Um, does not help people appreciate the reality and the veracity of truth. God has to reveal it to their hearts. So in verse 11, we see that Philip is admonished to believe. In verse 11 of 14, he's talking to Philip. He says, believe me that I am the Father, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sakes. That was almost identical to what he had told the Jews back in John chapter 10, verse 38 back there he said but if i do though ye believe me not believe the works that ye may know and believe that the father is in me and i in him so he had said to the jews that were not believing him he said hey look at the works and consider the things that i have done surely you can appreciate that the father is in me and i am in the father and so he's saying something very similar here to philip hey believe the me for the works' sakes the, the works testify that i am who i um, have said that i am and so uh but again, Philip's struggling here, Thomas is struggling here, and Peter is struggling here. And I've no doubt that all of the disciples are struggling here. And the Lord's going to help us to appreciate um, his understanding of what they don't understand and where that leaves them. Um, so given an appreciation that the disciples are no different than any of the rest of the people they are no different than any of us, we should appreciate what the Lord says in John 15, 19 when he says... I have chosen you out of the world. And indeed, that is true for all of us. The Lord has chosen every one of us unto salvation. And so we should appreciate that this was not something that a uh, conclusion that we arrived at through any intellectual pursuit. Um, it's not because we opened the Bible, began to read it, and then we simply understood it absent the benefit of the Holy Ghost. God has to open it unto us and, and, and place these truths upon our heart. So a very simple statement, the Lord has chosen them out of the world. Um, if they didn't understand what he had just said in verse 16, ye have not chosen me. He He tells us that very clearly. The disciples did not choose Jesus and certainly nobody else did either. He says, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Not only did he choose them, but he has ordained them to do certain things and ordained you that you should go "...and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain." So there's much said in that particular statement here. Not only have I chosen you, but I've ordained you to do a certain thing, to go out into the world and to preach the gospel, and that your fruit should remain. And so we should appreciate in order for that to be true, in order for their fruit to remain, in order for people to believe on the things that they have said, that too requires that God be with them, that the Holy Spirit impress those truths upon the people to whom they would preach the gospel to. Uh, You can certainly see that all throughout the Bible, and particularly with respect to Jesus' ministry, and that he preached, and how many people believed. When he went to the cross, he had been preaching the gospel for three and a half years. And how many people actually believed what he said? Well, they all scattered. Smite the shepherd, and the flock shall be scattered. And they all scattered. It requires the Holy Ghost to impress those truths upon people's hearts. It's required when you and I preach the gospel and it was required when Christ preached the gospel that the Holy Ghost would take that and impress that truth upon their hearts. And In Matthew chapter 28, that is where the Great Commission is given and that's identical to what he says there. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He's talking to the disciples and supplies to everybody in the church. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So as we go forth out into the world, the key word here is go out into the world and preach the gospel. It's incumbent that Christ be with us in his spirit to impress those truths on people's hearts. Now, the primary word in there and also in the world in this verse... um, john fifteen sixteen about going out into the world is that um, churches today i think in many ways are upside down and that they want to invite everybody off the street into the church uh, and preach to them there but that's not what the bible says it says to go out into the world and preach the gospel out in the world that believers would then come into the church because church is about worship it is the body of christ and the true body of christ consists only of regenerated people people that are, are new creatures in christ as our deacon uh, read for us this morning so you don't want to bring the world into the church. Um, but um, again, the main point I wanted us to really appreciate here is that we are chosen by God. And so we should be think- thankful that he has, has done that, that he has opened up our eyes and illuminated our hearts to who he is and all that he has done to us and, and for us. Now, down in verse 1 of chapter 14, the Lord opens with, Let not your heart be troubled. I find that an interesting statement for somebody who is on the verge of actually being betrayed, someone who's actually on the verge of being um, smitten, you know, arrested, uh, um, struck by the high priest, spat upon, uh, and he, which, of course, he knows about everything, somebody who's going to be taken and going to be scourged, someone whose visage is going to be marred more than any other person. You know, they're going to pull his whiskers off of his, uh, rip his hair off his face. And then they're going to nail him to a cross. Um, And he's comforting his disciples about what um, the absence that's going to take place when this process uh, begins. And he's taken to the uh, cross. In in 1 Peter 5, 7, uh, we read that we should cast all our cares upon him, for he careth for you. And so we should appreciate that. The Lord cares... (laughs) Uh, that we have cares. And so he encourages us to bring our our fears and our concerns and our doubts, uh, bring them to him that he might uh, settle our hearts, that we would appreciate all of the, the truth, the veracity of the scriptures. Because from one end of the Bible to the other, um, it's about reassuring us about who he is and, and what he has done and who he has done it um, for. And we saw that with respect to the death of, of Lazarus that the, that the Lord wept. Um, He wept because of the trial that was upon Mary and Martha's heart over the loss of um, their brother. So we appreciate that the Lord cares for us, and he certainly demonstrates that um, for us here. In terms of the first thing he talks about here is um, let your hearts not be troubled. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, it speaks about this in a more empirical sense. It says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of all of mercies and the God of all comfort. If there's any comfort to be found, it's to be found in God. Verse four, who comfort us all in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. So we can appreciate that very simply. There it says that that comfort is to be found in God, and the comfort that we receive there by virtue of our relationship with him, is comfort that we ought to be able to um, extend to other people that are suffering um, loss and struggling with the things of this world. Because what would we do? We would point them to Christ. Because in him is true comfort to be found. And so, again, the Lord, offering comfort here, has an understanding, because he knows the hearts of all men, that the disciples' need for comfort is really rooted in sin because they do not believe the things that he is telling them. So it's rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in their ignorance and failure to understand what the Scripture has said of Christ and the truths that he has said, things that he has said to them, and their failure to understand. And so God, knowing this, is really all rooted in sin. I mean, the Scripture says very broadly that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So they're struggling with all of this, and yet he comforts them. The reason he's going to the cross is because of our sin. And uh, the Bible says very simply in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Um, I think we ought to be able to appreciate, and you can read this in the Psalms, about how when the Lord went to um, the garden, you know, he prayed and he uh, Cried up with tears, and the Scripture says that the Lord heard him, and he prayed if there be any other way to remove this cup from me. But he appreciated that the answer was no; there is no other way. This is the way that has to go. But Christ went forward with the knowledge and the confidence that um, God is faithful and would be faithful to deliver him; that he would, in fact, accomplish everything that that, um, was set before him to accomplish, and God would raise him again from the dead. So he didn't go forward with any doubt. or a lack of faith certainly he's God himself but we do and so he would have been tempted to do so but yet did not in all points like we are he is tempted yet without sin so God knowing all of these things that are set before him here yet he comforts his disciples who are struggling with unbelief and with doubt um, when he meets with the disciples after his resurrection he meets them with peace be unto you and he's going to share that with us here that he's going to give them his peace not as the world knows peace but he's going to give them his peace he's going to speak about leaving them with another comforter he himself is a comforter but he's going to leave them with another comforter and when you read through the scriptures almost every epistle begins in the first couple of verses with a salutation that uh, grace and peace be unto you from God the Father and his Son, Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord is always uh, bringing us comfort through his word and through his spirit. And so that is the place, that is the person to whom we should turn when we are struggling with the things in this world that uh, cause us to, to doubt um, that God is actually in control of everything or that uh, maybe we're uh, experiencing something that he doesn't appreciate or understand or didn't actually come from him. Because all things do we, God, we are ever in God's uh, hands and the second part of verse one there back in John chapter 14 is ye believe in God, believe also in me that's an interesting statement that he would said that that he would say something like that um, they believe in God that comes in we talked about the verb tenses a couple of weeks ago that's the present indicative active meaning. It's happening while the Lord speaks. He says, yeah, you do believe uh, in, in God. Um, and he says, believe also in me. That's the present imperative active. In other words, he's telling them to do it. Why would he tell them to do it? Because they're not doing it. Their hearts wouldn't be troubled if they believed in him. So he's saying, hey, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, what's interesting about that statement is believing in God, um, it doesn't really get you anywhere. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it says... Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Same word, same verb tense. We've spoken about general revelation and um, special revelation. General revelation is everybody knows there's a God in heaven. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 speak about that to us so that you can see by the virtue of the things that God has created, you can appreciate certain characteristics and attributes about him so that there is no excuse. No man will ever stand before God and say, I didn't know there was a God. Special revelation requires that Christ reveal himself to you personally because salvation is only in Christ, and so he must reveal himself to you. When God uh, chooses people, he takes them and he gives them to Jesus. And we read about that in some of the previous chapters, that no man can come unto the Father. No man can come unto me, Christ, unless God which has sent me, draw him so it's required for god to give us to his son jesus christ so we have lots of people in our families who will say they believe in god and they will speak of god in a very generic sense Um, but salvation uh, for salvation to be a reality for them they have to believe in the person and the work of jesus christ that he actually died for them so that's not a savings faith there so what he's setting before them there listen if you believe in god if you if you believe in god now believe in me and why would he say that because he, is, because he is God. And he has already told them that if you believe in me, you believe in God. Um, because, again, they are one person. Justification, of course, is only through Christ. And so our salvation is, in, is rooted in Christ. And he's going to share with us that you cannot get to the Father in a saving way or in a loving way except through Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 2 here, he's going to speak about his Father's house. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. So he's talking about, he says his father has a house, and he had said that once before with respect to the temple. He said, uh, um, you have turned my father's house into a den of, of thieves. Um, so he's, his father has a house, and he wants us to appreciate that he's going there to prepare a place for us. Now the word mansions there, is a nice word. It actually comes from the Latin word uh, manio, which means to dwell. So, what he's speaking about is there are many places to dwell in his father's house. So, um, kind of take that out of the realm where you drive through Hillsborough or some of the cities around here and you see these very large houses that we call man- mansions. You are in a mansion right now, <laughs> you're in a, a dwelling place. And so to speak of his father's house, it has the, has the ultimate meaning of dwelling in him, the father, or dwelling in Christ. If you look through the scripture, you'll see that that word has, a, has multiple meanings, but ultimately the Lord wants us to appreciate that it means living in himself. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, we find that word there. And uh, Matthew 10, verse 12, it says, and when you come into a house... Well, that's obviously what he, obvious what he means there. He means a physical structure. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return unto you. Well, in the second verse there, verse 13, what is he speaking about? If the house uh, be worthy or not worthy? He's talking about the people in the house. You know, you've heard of the house of David or the house of this or that person. It it's also includes people. So you can move it from a literal physical structure now to one that includes people. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, again we see a similar understanding of the word there. In Matthew uh, 12, 25, he says, and Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand well how can a house a physical structure be divided against itself clearly it's not speaking of that it's speaking about a lineage or genealogy of of people so we again appreciate that that word there means houses it means people in mark chapter 12 verse 40 it's a little bit broader and it's expanded to mean all of their possessions and mark 12:40 it says speaking of the um, uh, the scribes and the pharisees they say they devour widows Houses, They devour widow's houses and for a pretext make long prayers. Um, these shall receive greater damnation. So the houses includes a physical structure. It includes all of the possessions. And it includes all of the people that are part of that house. Now, our deacon read for us this morning, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And there, that word house was used to describe our actual body. For we know that if our earthly house, that's that word there, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. So now we're talking about, first a physical body, that we presently live in, but also a glorified body that we would then live in. So we've moved now again from a physical structure, physical possessions, to this idea of where our soul and our spirit dwells. Um, So God has a house, uh, too, uh, which would include all of his people, all of his possessions. It's referred to in the scripture as a temple. Um, It's referred to in the body, excuse me, in the Bible, as also a church. The church is the house of the living God. It's also... Defined as the body of Christ here. So the Lord is sharing with us in John 14 here, he says, There is room for you, you know, the people he has chosen in that house and that there is a place for you to dwell in that house and again thinking of the typology of the temple it actually had uh chambers, rooms outside of uh, the temple that were attached to the temple if you went up a level it was actually three stories and as you went up it got higher and higher as so there were more rooms as you as you went up so the lord is sharing with us here there are there are pl- many places uh, for you to dwell in uh, there and so the Lord is going to go prepare a place for them. And indeed, he prepares a place for everybody that's going to dwell in that house. But well, where is he going to go? He's going to go to the cross to prepare that place for him. And that's what he says up in verse 33 of John 13, that you cannot come. The Lord is going to do that exclusively by himself. And we should appreciate that the preparation of that house is far more complicated and far more involved than anything else the Lord has ever uh, done for his people. He spoke the entire cosmos into existence. He spoke the earth into existence. He created the people out of the dust of the earth. You know, he spoke stars into existence. But to build this place, it's going to require that he go to the cross, suffer the wrath of the God uh, of his father, and actually Die, so we should appreciate what is required for him to make room for us uh, to prepare a place for us in that um, in that house. Now as the Lord builds this house what is he going to build it upon? <laughs> well John uh, Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 speaks about building a house and Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 it says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. What is God the Father going to build this house upon? Christ. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Um, God is going to build his house upon Christ, who is the rock, and it shall stand forever. Everything that God has done here, he does in his son, Jesus Christ. And we should appreciate uh, that nothing has changed in the scriptures. God does the same things today the way he did them in the past there is not a thing that you and I have done to prepare the place that we're going to go live in it's going to be fully prepared for us uh, when we get there indeed it already is Um, think of it as a turnkey operation back in Deuteronomy when the Lord was leading his uh, people through the wilderness he set this truth uh, before them Uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 10 He says, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not. Two things to appreciate there. God is going to bring them into the promised land. He didn't just point and say, you know, it's over there. Go, I have freed you from Egypt. Now just go there. He's actually going to bring them into the promised land. And that's a truth that's important for us to appreciate in the scriptures because you see the same thing in the Bible here. He says in verse 3, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The Lord just doesn't point to heaven and say, "There it is, uh, go. Um, There is the verse in scripture, John chapter 8, I believe, where he says, um, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It's important for us to appreciate the word make. The Lord doesn't set you free. He makes you free. And you see that all throughout the Scriptures. You see it back in Genesis 19 when the angel of the Lord went down into Sodom. He didn't just tell Lot he needed to go. I mean, he did tell them that, but what was the result of that? He didn't do anything. He didn't want to go. So the Lord uh, actually led them out. In verse 16 of Genesis chapter 19, it says, And while he lingered, The men, that would be the angels of the Lord, laid hold upon his hand, Lot's hands, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and indeed it is merciful that the Lord makes us free, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. Two angels, four people, one hand per person. The Lord actually takes them out of the city. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 5 when Peter is in prison. Acts chapter five in verse nineteen it says but the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors plural and brought them forth but the angel of the Lord went into the prison and led them out brought them forth out of prison same thing again for Peter in Acts chapter twelve verse seven and eight Peter's been incarcerated he's about to be killed and it says and behold the angel of the Lord came upon him and a light shined in the prison and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up and said arise quickly and his chains fell off his hands and the angel said unto him gird thyself and bind on thy sandals and so he did and said unto him cast thy garments about thee and follow me so we see three places here again indicative of what the lord does for us he makes us free he goes into he went into sodom and dragged them out he went into the prison in, in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 12 and led them out. And so the Lord does it. In verse 3 here, John 14, he says that. I will go and I will come again and receive you unto myself. So back in Deuteronomy here, again, he's going to bring them into the goodly land, into a cities which they did not build. Verse 11, and houses full of all good things, which thou filledest not, and wells digged, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not when thou shalt have eaten and be full and then there's the caution about don't forget who i am which they did do but i assure you we shall not do it uh, as we move forward here because sins in the flesh and that will go to the grave so we appreciate what the lord is doing here in john 14 is identical to what he's gone done in the past he brings his people into a place that he has already prepared for them And just as he prepared that place for them, so too is he going to the cross to prepare a place for us, a place that will be, everything will be done. There is nothing that uh, will need to be done. So we get to verse 4 here, and he says, Whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. And what is the way to the Father? Even for Christ himself, it's through the cross. We appreciate that in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 that the Lord went through to cross to get into the holiest of holies. In Hebrews 10, verse 19, we have, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ. We enter into the holiness, we enter into uh, the presence of God through the blood of Christ. He says in verse 20, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Christ went to the Father the same way that we're going to the Father. He went through the cross and he went through his flesh. He went through, um, through his, his blood. And that is the way that we have to go here. And so in verse 5, Thomas is ignorant. No, I don't know. I don't understand this. And the Lord says it about as clear as could possibly be said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That simple statement shuts down every false religion on the planet. It shuts down every false god on the planet, every um, uh, speculative way about how to get to glory, how to get to heaven. The Lord has told us here there is only one way. Only one way. There is one door. He has referred to himself as the door to the sheepfold. There is only one door. The Bible speaks of the narrow way and the straight gate. It's one road, and it is one way, one door, and that is all Christ. There is but one truth. Not only is it to be understood, that to be understood in an intellectual sense, but what he's setting before us here is he himself is the truth. We know that every man is a liar, and God uh, only speaks the truth. But not only does he only say the truth, but he himself actually is the truth. The truth. There's no relativism with him. There's none of this foolishness of self-identification. What's your truth is your truth. What's true to you is true to you. What's true to me is true to me. No, that's not true. (laughs) That is a lie. Um, Christ himself is the truth, and he has set before us the true way, the only way by which we might access the Father. There is only one life, one way, one truth, and one life. Everything else is death. There's no shades, there's no shadows, there's nothing in between. There are no half-truths. There is only one way, one truth, and one life. And it is only through Christ himself. He himself is the truth, and he himself is life, and he himself is the way. All of those things are personified in himself. And so our deacon, I appreciated his quotation this morning of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things are passed away. All things are become new. Amen. Amen.